Welcome to the 56th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Paul Malmott, author of The Chinatown Death Cloud Peril, Jack London in Paradise, and Malmott's latest novel, The Astounding, The Amazing, and The Unknown. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Paul Malmont. Paul is the author of The Chinatown, Death Cloud Peril, and Jack London in Paradise. Paul's new novel is The Astounding, The Amazing, and The Unknown. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, The Astounding, The Amazing, and The Unknown yet, can you describe a little bit about what the novel is about? Sure. It's based on a true story uh, of World War II, where the Navy hired Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, and Elspreet de Camp to form the core of a think tank at the Philadelphia Naval Yard. And uh, they were tasked with trying to make ships invisible to uh, incoming uh, radar. So, um, you know, it was just this core group of really intelligent, interesting science fiction writers that were supposed to come up with great ideas, and then I put them in an adventure where they have to um, uh, race the Nazis to uh, discover uh, the secret to a, a Tesla uh, weapon left over from uh, the early 1900s that um, may have the uh, capability to destroy a, a fleet of ships uh, at sea. So um, it's, a, you know, it's a World War II adventure featuring some of your favorite golden age science fiction writers, but it's also a tribute to the golden age of science fiction. Great. Well, I guess as a card-carrying geek myself, I, I, I had known that Isaac Asimov had worked with Heinlein during World War II, and I knew that from reading Asimov's kind of monstrously huge two-volume autobiography. I'm curious how you uh, discovered the factual background behind the novel. Well, I was doing, you know, Robert Heinlein was a, a character in my uh, first book, The Chinatown Death Cloud Peril. Um, <clears throat> wasn't uh, such a lead character as he is in this one, but in doing all the research about his life, um, I uh, came across the fact that he had worked with uh, Isaac Asimov and Elspreet de Camp, and, uh, you know, I already knew uh, a little bit about the legend of the Philadelphia experiment, which uh, came out of the same um, time period and actually the same location, the Philadelphia Naval Yard. So, um, you know, it, uh, it was natural that uh, handed a great piece of uh, trivia like that uh, and a great piece of uh, uh, legendary... Uh, Fordian uh, mythology that uh, I had to uh, jump in there and, and tell that story as well. Great. Well, what is it about the golden age of science fiction and, the, and these writers that kind of appeal to you to write the novel? Well, I think a lot of what uh, strikes me about the golden age is, you know, a lot of these guys were doing it for, you know, it's the birth of a genre. So a lot of the guys were discovering um, the limits of the the storytelling form, and uh, but they were also really good. I mean, that's the great thing about um, at the golden age of science fiction, as opposed to um, you know the earlier uh, golden era of uh, pulps, the adventure pulps in the 30s. Is um, the, the difference is the writing is really good. So you're getting guys like Ray Bradbury and Robert Heinlein and 
um, you know, Isaac Asimov and Gidden, these guys who are really good storytellers and not just in a pulp sense, like so they knew how to uh, get the action adventure, but the themes are really big. And Judith Merrill is another one, and Frederick Pohl. So you have these really good um, writers and, and creating this new form of literature. So it was very exciting. I think it was a very exciting time for them. They fed off each other. So it was very fun to, to write about and try to capture, recapture some of that uh, excitement in, uh, of, uh, of the golden age. Great. Well, well, from what you from what you just described, I, I think you're someone who appreciates the pulp tradition and American fiction. And I, I'm not sure if you're aware that when Stephen King accepted the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters in 2003, he gave a really impassioned speech aimed primarily at what I felt was a mainstream fiction audience to read more widely and realize the appeal and impact of genre fiction. As someone who's probably thought about this issue, why do you think there remains this huge gulf that exists from both sides with with uh, writers who consider themselves literary writers being disdainful of genre writers and also at the same time some genre writers kind of being disdainful of 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 writers who are who are pursuing more literary novels right well people like to make a competition out of uh, everything and uh, you know some people like the yankees some people like the mets you know the um in literature you know the the, the vast bit of um criticism and the vast uh body of education has been focused around, you know, the American canon, which includes, you know, Philip Roth and um, John Cheever and, you know, Raymond Carver and some of these other people. And, and, and that's kind of dominated uh, uh, the intelligentsia over the last uh, 50 years. But, um, you know, there's, uh, I think that the impact of, of, uh, of that group of criticism, not the author so much, is, is kind of dwindling as as people realize that, you know, it's okay to like something that's also popular and it's okay to like something that is fun. You know, that's one of the things that um, in uh, my two books I've tried to stress again that, that reading can be fun and it used to be and it got to a certain point where, you know, I think some people just kind of um, stopped looking at it as, as uh, a form of entertainment and sort of looking at, you know, like every book you have to read has to change your life. And that's just not the case. I mean, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can read for fun, you know? So, sure. uh, so well, short answer. Okay. Well, do you, do you think there are, there are specific genre writers that, that, that you've read that, that you think are worthy of a new kind of critical rediscover, rediscovery similar to what's happened in the last 20 years with Jim Thompson or Philip K. Dick? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Obviously, uh, I mean, he doesn't need my help, but Stephen King certainly is, um, you know, needs to be, uh, I think, reevaluated, and he, he, he certainly has been, uh, um, Recipient of some reevaluation in his, his genre too. Um, I think uh, Neil Stevenson is definitely putting out, um, you know, uh, great literature as well as great uh, genre material. Um, uh, you know, Ian Banks. Um, I think you know somebody like Douglas Adams. I think his his work is right for uh, you know a real re-review. I mean, everyone takes it for granted because he was so successful in the stuff. 
was funny, but you know, by the time the guy got the last few books in, in that Hitchhiker series, they were really good, and there were really big ideas that he was going after in a really clever way, and it doesn't always have to be somber. Comedy can uh, can do great things, too, and, and can tell, especially in, in philosophy, which I think was what he was really concerned with, um, uh, tell great stories. So, you know, if, if anybody asked me who who really needed to, you know, who, who's deserving of uh, reevaluation uh, from a literary perspective, I would say Douglas Adams. Interesting. Um, when you have a chance to read for pleasure, what have you been reading lately that you've particularly enjoyed? Uh, it's been a while since I've read for pleasure because I'm always <laughs> doing research, but um, I've been hearing a lot about Ian Banks and the culture novels, so I, I read the first two in that series and, and uh, enjoyed them uh, immensely. Um, but those are literally the last two books that I've read uh, in the last year that haven't really been about, you know, uh, something that I'm researching. So. Right. Well, um, what, what is your what is your writing process like? Do you do you outline extensively, or are you more of an organic writer that kind of sees where the story takes you? And, and also, kind of related to that, um, before you published your first novel, how did you kind of manage your time? Did you, when you were, I assume, working, you know, another job, did you uh, write early in the morning or late at night, or, or how did how did that happen? Well. Um... I'll, I'll tell the answer to the first question. Uh, the first, I'll answer the second part of this question first. Um, with my first novel, I did have a job. I actually still do have a day job. Um, and I, I wrote that in the morning because I had a baby, and I'd get up with the baby at uh, 5 or so in the morning and feed him and play, and then he'd fall back to sleep, but I'd be up because it wasn't worth going back to sleep. So I had these hours. Um, and I used to be a nighttime writer, but I couldn't do that because, again, because of my son, I couldn't stay up that late anymore. So I just switched my schedule and started writing in the morning, and I hadn't been a, um, uh, a novelist before, but I had written a number of screenplays, and um, uh, none of which ever went anywhere, but I had learned a lot doing it. And I just said, okay, well, I have this story about Pulp Fiction writers, and it uh, wouldn't work as a screenplay because it really was about the writing. So why don't I just try writing a chapter and see what happens? And then chapter two followed out of that. And um, By the time I got to chapter three, I thought, you know, I'd made some choices about switching points of view and how this book was going to work, and I thought, you know, I can, I can do this. So I uh, worked on that every morning uh, for a year and then finally uh, uh, had a book. And then um, since that one was published, you know, now it's a, a going concern, so I write, um, you know, nights and weekends and... Uh, yeah, but I still have a day job in advertising, and I'm at five days a week, and it's a you know, full-time job as a creative director, and uh, you just, uh, I make the time. So, um, uh, and as far as outlining goes and, and preparation, I'm a big believer in, in uh, preparation and uh, the outline, and so I'll, I'll continue, I'll spend a lot of time working on that and making notes and, and trying to figure out where I'm going to go, So especially because I'm dealing with history as well as fictional elements, so I have to make sure, it's like a big puzzle, I have to make sure that, uh, you know, um, I'm plausibly putting uh, my fictional characters in the places that their real-life counterparts were and positioning them for the future that we know lies ahead of them. So um, I can't do that without uh, a lot of um, preparation. Great. 
Well, what advice do you have for aspiring writers who, who may be trying to publish their own work or get their own work published? Um, you know, the advice is uh, just keep at it. Uh, I think there's a big market for uh, writers. It's a weird time because uh, there are so many... Um, the publishing industry is in such transition right now from uh, uh, an 18th century business model where they uh, cut down trees and transported paper pulp to plants and processed chemicals and put out a uh, fibrous product that they then delivered to a brick-and-mortar store to um, something that doesn't quite need to be so uh, archaic and industrially uh, um, handled to uh, so you know there's, there's definitely some changes and even in the uh, five or six years that, that I've published three books I've seen you know uh, you know we just lost borders last week huge huge things are, are, are going on lots of big changes so there are opportunities and, and uh, my advice to anybody is that um, you know there, there are still people who want your book and there are still agents who, who, who want to sell it and there are still publishers who want to put it out and in some ways, publishing is still the uh, the most democratic way to to get your voice out there and, and share your vision. It's easier than, uh, say, film or television or some of the more collaborative art forms. Uh, and there is definitely a need for uh, product and stuff to to fill the shelves. But the shelf space is more limited now. So I would also recommend looking at some of the other distribution models, like ebooks and things like that, uh, that where some other authors are turning. I mean, uh, I think that's going to be a big part of all of our future. The, the question is the um, where and there is the, the the curatorial editorial aspect can fit so that you still know that you're getting something of value and quality uh, as a consumer. But for for writers, I would definitely be open to to everything. I think it's a good time. It's just a challenging time. Sure, sure. Well, what are you working on next? Are you ready to talk about or hint about it? I'm still trying to get people to read uh, The Astounding, Amazing, and the Unknown, and I'll be working on that for the, the foreseeable uh, future. And uh, the, there, there might be a sequel to this one, uh, a planned uh, sequel to follow some of the characters a little bit further into their, their lives and futures. But... Uh, that's more up to the uh, the audience at this point than it is uh, to me. So uh, uh, we'll see about that. Well, great. Well, where can readers find you online? Uh, they can find me at paulmalmont.com or thatamazingbook.com. They can also find me at, uh, at Twitter, at Paul Malmont, or P. Malmont, I'm sorry, at P. Malmont, and um, on Facebook. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Paul Melmont. His new novel, The Astounding, The Amazing, and The Unknown, is available in bookstores now and available as an ebook. So, Paul, thanks for doing the podcast. Thanks so much. Hi, this is author Peter O'Rulian, uh, author of The Unremembered, and you're listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, 
you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.